So uh, last week, we kicked off a new series called Confident, A Life That Wins in the End. And our pastor just set it up so beautifully for us. And he said right off the bat, he said, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to eternal life, there are no participation trophies. There are no participation trophies when it comes to winning an eternal life, right? He says, if we want to have confidence that we will win in the end, then our confidence cannot be in our own efforts or performance. If we want to live a life that wins in the end, our confidence, we must be confident in somebody else's performance. We must have confidence not in what we can achieve in our own strength, but in what Jesus Christ achieved on our behalf. And ultimately, if we want to win in the end, all of our confidence, all of our hope must be in him and not in our own efforts, not in us. And so with week two, Um, We're going to continue on that foundation. We're going to continue building on what was laid for us last week. And if you're taking notes or if you're the type of person that likes to have a title for for a talk, here's what it is. This week we're going to talk about what it means to have confidence in the captain of the storm. What it looks like for us to be confident in the captain of the storm. And I'm going to be looking with you guys at one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. Matthew 14, where Jesus and Peter, for that matter, walk on water and where he calms the storm. And what we see in this text is that Jesus is not just the captain of a boat, but he's actually the captain of a storm. He's the one ruling and reigning over the wind and the waves. And as I was thinking about this talk and thinking about this passage, um, I decided to call a childhood friend of mine, a buddy of mine named Will Lyons. And Will, a few years ago, back in 2005, got a call from Discovery Channel to be on the film crew for a brand new show that they were releasing that year. Little show you may have heard of it called The Deadliest Catch. We have any uh, fans in the house today? (laughs) It's an awesome show, right? The Deadliest Catch. It's a great show. And I said, man, I got to get in touch with Will. He's actually in Alaska right now filming for the current season of this show. And I'm like, man, I've got to get in touch with him because I I just want to hear his craziest, scariest, wildest storm story that he's ever had, right? And I mean, the whole show is built on storms, right? It's these guys, if you know the premise of the show, they they go out into the, the North Atlantic or the Arctic Ocean and they're trying to just get the payday. They're trying to get the biggest haul of crabs the world has ever seen because as many crabs as they can stuff into the hull of their ship is as much money as they're gonna make for that year, that season of crab fishing. And so I called up Will and I said, Will, um, I just wanna hear your craziest storm story. And he's like, without hesitation, he's like, I got it for you. No, no hesitation whatsoever, he's like, I got it. It was year three, so 2008 of shooting the, the, the show. And he said, I'll never forget it. Never forget it because it's the middle of the night. There's a huge storm blowing in. And the ice, the, the sea is, is threatening to freeze over because the temperatures are dropping so quick. And he said, that's a bad thing if, you're, um, if you have your pods in the bottom of the ocean attached to buoys that you have to go back and get where all the crabs are because if the ice, if the, the pack ice freezes over your buoys where the pods are, he goes, it will, it will literally sever the ropes and you'll lose your catch. And you'll lose your cages in the bottom of the ocean, no way to get them. And so he said, we had to turn the ship around, head straight back into this massive storm that was bearing down on us. 
And he said, you know, here we are in 50 mile an hour winds, 40 foot swells, just think of like a four story house, okay? And he said, there's a few things that you never want to have happen if you're in the middle of a storm. He said, the first thing is, you don't want to have a slack tank. You don't want a slack tank. And I was like, what's a slack tank? He said, okay, beneath, these, beneath the deck of these 100-foot crabbing boats, okay, 100-foot boats, there is a massive tank. That's where all the, the crabs go. That's where the water goes to keep them fresh and alive until they get back to shore. He said, this thing is 100 feet long, all the way the, the width of the entire boat, and about 15 feet deep. And he said, a slack tank is what happens when that tank is half full. He goes, you either want it all the way full or completely empty because if the water starts sloshing around while you're in the middle of a storm, or he said this, riding trough between the waves instead of into the waves, he said it can literally capsize your boat. And so you got to make sure you don't have a slack tank. I was like, good to know. Okay. He said, the second thing is, and I just mentioned it. He goes, if you're in a storm, you never want to be sideways or riding trough to the waves for very long. He goes, if you take a wave head on, your boat is not in danger of capsizing. But if you're trough, if you're in between the waves and a wave hits you from the side, you could capsize. You'd be dead. You're done. He said, two things happened at once. We're heading in, we, we get the first crab pod, we, we get it up, and the deck boss goes to unload it in the tank, and he looks down, and he starts flipping out. He starts going crazy. Will is about 15 feet away. He's uh, tethered to the deck. He's got a camera on his shoulder, blizzard ice everywhere, and he looks at the deck boss's eyes, and he just sees sheer terror in his eyes, okay? And the Deck boss runs to the phone, calls the captain up in the, in the helm of the ship, and he goes, we've got a slack tank. We've got a slack tank. The pump's broken. It's half full. And Will's like, oh, that's, I think I remember something about the slack tank. That's bad, okay? What made it worse is they had just picked up the pod and they had turned trough. They had turned sideways and they were trying to turn back to go to the next pod. So as they're turning trough, they have a slack tank, and Will looks to the captain, because he said, and I loved this when he said this, he said, you know, up until that point, we had seen some nasty storms. Like, even the storm that we were in, it wasn't unique. It wasn't like the first crazy storm we were in, but I was never afraid, because I always looked to the helm where the captain was, and he was always calm. And I thought, you know, this dude grew up on the sea. He's been in the ocean all of his life. He's never sunk a ship. All of his crew members have always come home. As long as he's not freaking out, it's going to be okay, right? As long as the captain is not panicking, we're all going to be fine. So Will kind of puts his camera down and looks up, and the captain's panicking, okay? The captain is freaking out, and he's just like, Oh man, I sh this is bad. I've never seen him look that afraid. He gets on the loudspeaker of the boat and he says, brace for impact. Brace for impact. Grab onto something. We might capsize, right? Will's already tethered in. He's like, I'm braced. I can't go anywhere. I got my camera. Let's roll. We're filming. I don't know what's about to happen. This is going to be crazy, right? So they turn trough. They have a slack tank. 40-foot swell comes up on the side. He said, I... I'll never forget it. Our boat turns completely perpendicular to the water. And he said it was only a miracle of God. And I don't know why to this day that we didn't keep turning and capsize. 
but the wave crashed, we turned perpendicular, and for some reason, the ship righted itself. We put the pod in the thing, we got the water out of the tank, and we just headed straight home. We left every other pod out in the ocean. It was the scariest moment of my life. And as I'm thinking about this text where Jesus is walking on the storm, I'm thinking about Will and I'm thinking about us. Because there's so many of us in this room who are in a storm. This is not just unique to to, uh, the deadliest catch crew or to the disciples in this story. We all go through storms in life. We all face circumstances and scenarios. Many of us are in them right now. And if we're not in one, we're probably headed toward one. And the key of the entire thing is where are our eyes in the midst of the storm? And is our captain panicked or is he at peace? And in this story, in this text that we're about to look at, Jesus is not just navigating a ship through the wind and the waves. He is riding the wind and the waves. He is the captain of the storm. He's not only in complete control of the ship, he's in complete control of the storm. And the thing that he wants to get through to us today is this, and what I think this whole story is about. Because I think we've, we've read this story, if we've, we've heard this story, if we've been around church or been in church at all, and we've said, man, this is a cool story because of what happened with Peter. And Peter walked on water too. That's pretty amazing, right? Or we read this story and say, wow, it's amazing that Jesus calmed the storm. Or it's amazing that, and we fill in the blank, they were in a storm. But I think the entire point of this passage is for us to be certain and clear about who Jesus is about the identity of Jesus. And that's what he wants to land for us today. Jesus wants us to know, at the end of the day, how we fill in the blank of who do you say that I am is the most important thing about your life. When he asks you, and he's asking you this morning through me, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? How you answer that question will affect the next 10,000 years of your life, your eternity, not just your life here, but your life in the ages to come. And what he's asking us today, what he wants us to look at today is Jesus is not who we think we need him to be. He is the captain of the storm. He is the one true and living God. And so let's look at this together. Matthew 14, if you have a Bible or a phone, we can open it. Starting in verse 22, here's what it says. 1422, it says, Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now let's just pause there for a second. That's that's weird to me. That's strange to me, right? The context for this story is that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And John 6, which is the other gospel that tells this story, John 6 says, hey, everybody was blown away at the miracle that Jesus had just performed. And they were trying by force to take him to the capital and make him king. They were going to take him to Jerusalem and anoint him as king. But he knew his time had not yet come. And so here Jesus is with a crowd of people that he's been healing all day long. He's been multiplying food for them, literally 10,000 people estimated, only 5,000 men, it says, besides women and children. Roughly, conservatively, I'd say eight to 10,000 people present. 
So here you have a Verizon wireless amphitheater full of people, okay? And Jesus here, all these people pressing into him. They, they, they just want to be near him. They want to hear the words coming from his mouth. They are blown away by this guy and who he is and what he's doing. And now they just want to make him king. And so in this scenario, you would think that his disciples are kind of like his bodyguards, right? In other scenarios, they're the ones kind of keeping the crowds off of him, trying to hold people back from him as they're trying to touch him or, or grab the hem of his coat just to be healed. And so instead of that, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, get in the boat, go to the other side. Jesus, they're not really after us right now. They're after you, right? We're not really the, the, the focal point of attention right now. You are, don't you need our help to like get you out of here? I mean, I was thinking of it, it'd be like Taylor Swift, right, in the middle of a flash mob in downtown New York City, right? And she's got her security with her, and she looks at him and says, all right, guys, all of you up to the hotel right now, I'll deal with this. That would make no sense at all, because they all want a piece, they want, they want a selfie with Taylor Swift, right? There's no way that would happen, and here Jesus is stepping into that moment, being like, all right, guys, I'll deal with the crowd. I mean, 10,000 people. But somehow, Jesus, I guess being God, he does, and he dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up to a mountain to pray. And I think there's something important that we see here. We begin to see a separation between the disciples and the crowd. We see him intentionally separating his disciples from the crowd. And so the crowd who now has full stomachs, the crowd who has said, hey, I need you to be my healer today, Jesus, so I need a healer right now. I need you to be my king. I need you to be the one who's going to overthrow Rome, right? The crowd who is seeking him for who they need him to be, he sends them home, but then he sends the disciples out into the sea. And he says, in essence, I think what he's doing here is a divine setup, right? Right? He's saying, look, disciples, um, I need you to get something right about me. These crowds are seeking me right now for, for who they need me to be, for who they think I am. They have no clue who I really am right now, but I'm about to show you. So I'm going to send you out into the sea right now. I'm going to send the crowds home with full stomachs, and I'm going to go up on this mountain right now and pray. And I think the implicit message there is I'm going to pray for you for what you're about to head into. I'll never forget when I was 16, um, I, this was in Kentucky at the time, I had to take, after I'd passed my, before I could pass my driving test, I had to take a driver's license written exam, right? Anybody else have to do that? I don't even know if that still happens today. I had to take a driver's license written exam, and I was the oldest kid in my class, I remember, I'll never forget, sophomore year of high school, so all my buddies were like, Yes, Hanson's about to get his driver's license. No more minivan mom rides to the mall where we can hang out and be cool. Hanson's gonna get it. He's got a sweet 1984 Volvo wagon that's ready to ride. We, this is great. We're on the verge of freedom, right? So I had a lot of pressure riding on me to, to pass this driver's license uh, exam. And I'll never forget, I'm like, I don't need to study for this thing. They like handed me a book and they're like, hey, you should probably read this before you do it. You have to get at least an 80 on this thing in order to actually take your driver's test and get your license. And I'm like, you stop at the red, you know, you go with green. I, I don't need to read this book. I got it, right? I feel fully comfortable with 
passing my driver's license exam. But I got into that thing. It was 30 questions, and here was the problem. It was fill in the blank, okay? It wasn't multiple choice. I'm thinking, surely, you know, I got a, you know, one out of four odds here to get this right, but it was fill in the blank. And so I remember sitting down, and I'm like, okay, 30 questions. I could miss six, and six only. And I got to say, there were seven doozies on that sucker, okay? I guarantee you, if I asked you some of those questions, you'd be like, I've been driving for 20 years, and I don't know the answer to that, right? Uh, it's kind of like, what do you do when all four people show up to the stop sign at the same time? I know you all know it's the one on the right, whatever. But uh, at the end of the day, I remember sitting there, and I'm like, all right, I'm real confident about 23 of these. 23 of these for sure got them right. The other seven are just straight blanks. I don't have a clue what the answer is. And I remember there was one that I was like, oh, it could be this, it could be that. I gotta get this one right. Because if I don't, I've let all my friends down and I gotta wait another month before I can take it again and get my license. I was like, oh gosh, this is just the pressure in this moment. And here's the deal. I did not get the chance to just write down whatever I wanted in that blank. I, it wasn't up to me. I couldn't just make up an answer and be like, here you go, you better count it right. There was a right answer and there was a wrong answer and I put the wrong answer in. I, fa I failed, I did. I failed my driver's license test the first time I ever took it. One of the most humiliating things in my life. Um, but there was a right and a wrong answer in that moment. I, I, I failed. I put the wrong answer in the blank and and when I think about this scenario with Jesus and his disciples, he's saying, look, there's a, there's a blank right now regarding my identity on this earth. There's a lot of people that look at me and say, man, that's a great prophet right there. There's a lot of people that look at me and say, listen to the words coming from his mouth. He's an amazing teacher. There's people that look at me and they say, he's a healer. I've seen, him, I've seen him cleanse lepers and cause the lame to walk and cause the blind to see. There's people that look at me and they say, I've seen him multiply food. He's a great provider of our needs. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's gonna say, how are you gonna fill in the blank? Who do you say that I am? Am I all of those things? Yes, but is that who I am? No. I am so much more than that. I'm so much bigger than that. And how you fill in this blank is really important. You can't just write whatever you want. We don't get to choose what goes in that blank. We don't get to choose the identity of Jesus. He chooses that, and then he peels back the curtain of glory, and he says, look, I want you to see who I am. In fact, I'm willing to send you into a storm so you get this one right. I'm willing to cast you out into the sea in the middle of some of the most difficult things you've ever walked through because I want you to win in the end. I don't want you just to fill in the blank with the wrong answer. You need to see me for who I truly am. So he sends his disciples out into the sea. In Matthew 14, going on down, 23 and verse 24, it says, after he had sent them away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening and he was there alone, the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the wind and the waves, for the wind was blowing against it. Here's why I believe this was a setup. That word battered in Greek is basinitzo. 
The word battered in Greek is translated basenitso, and it has two meanings. One, it means to be battered or beaten by, by wind and waves, like in that context. The second context that that word is used in is for, um, it was used in relation to merchants and bankers in that age, in that era. And the merchants and bankers, they would test the, the quality of gold that was given to them in, in trade or in investment. And the only way they could test the gold, the, the basanitsu, was by rubbing it against the touchstone to see if the stone with the presence of gold would change color. That's how they could test the, the genuineness, the purity of that gold. And so there's a lot of words that Matthew could have used right here when he says they were battered by the winds and the waves, but I think what he's saying is they were tested. There was a test of genuineness happening right here that Jesus had just sent them into because he wants them to get the answer right. He wants them to see the truth of who he is. And the only way they're gonna see it is not by going home to their beds with full stomachs, but it's by seeing him in a storm. So Basanitzo, he sends him out into the sea. Verse 26, it says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Don't miss this. It says, when, when they saw who? Jesus, right? This is what's so amazing to me. And I think we just, we miss this in the story. We think they're scared of the storm. These guys are, are hardened fishermen. They've grown up on the sea their whole life. They're not scared of the storm. They're out there managing the wind and the waves, right? They're managing in their own strength. Sure, they're getting pushed further from store, from the, from the land, from shore, but they're managing the storm. It says in verse 26, the fear enters the scene, the terror enters the scene when they see Jesus. And so here they are in their own strength, managing this storm, laying on these oars, trying to get back to shore, but they're not freaking out at this point. They're not terrified yet. They're not afraid yet. It wasn't until, verse 26, when they saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear because they had made the same mistake as the crowds. They had no idea who they were dealing with yet. They had no clue who Jesus was yet. And he said, I mean, he, this entire thing is a setup for them to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. I'm gonna peel back the curtain. I need you to know me for who I am. And he's filling in the blank. Verse 27. This is the crux. This is the, the central point of the whole thing. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't say in that moment, he doesn't say in that moment, hey, don't worry, I'm gonna calm the storm down. Hey, don't worry, guys, I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna get you out of this. He says, take courage, it's me. I am that I am. Just like my father before me in the burning bush looked at Moses and he said, hey, uh, you know, God, who are you? Who do I tell Pharaoh that has sent me? And God re replies, tell them I am has sent me to you. Jesus in the middle of the storm, walking on the waves, says, take courage, take heart. It's me. It's I. This is who I am. I'm going to let you see behind the curtain right now, disciples. I'm not sending you home with the rest of the crowds. The only way you can see me for who I truly am is by being out here in the middle of this storm in the fourth watch of the night. 
when things are just the darkest before the dawn. So out there in the water, on the ocean, take courage. It is I. Not I'm about to solve this situation, but it's me. And I'm here with you in it. The crowds might see me as a political activist. They might see me as a good teacher, a provider of bread, a worker of miracles. But I'm telling you right now, I am God in the flesh. I am telling you right now, disciples, I'm so much more. I am, I am the image of God walking with you right now. I am God. I am the son of the living God sitting here to rescue you, not just to, to provide you some temporary food for your stomach. I'm here to crush the head of sin and death for now and all time and rescue a people that would look to me forever and worship me, worship me as I am not for who they need me to be, not for who they want me to be. And then Peter, I love it. I love Peter. He's, he's such an, a crazy, impetuous character in the scriptures. He's nuts, right? Peter is crazy. In verse right here, I love it, verse 29. We'll go back one, verse 28. Peter says, basically, prove it. Prove it. If you are who you say you are, if this is really happening, if you're not a ghost, then prove it. Have me walk out there with you. Ask me to come to you on the water. I love that. Who would think of that? Like, couldn't you just have said, all right, prove it, calm the whole thing down? No, if you're actually the great I am, if you're actually saying you're God, if, if this is what you're proposing to us right now, Jesus, the only way I'm gonna believe that is if you ask me to get out of this boat, walk on the water towards you. And Jesus says, okay, you've been managing this situation pretty well, Peter. You're a pretty good sailor. You're, you know, you're pretty good on, on the water. But I'm gonna ask you to come into a completely unmanageable situation right now. Yeah, come on. I'm inviting you into something completely unmanageable. And there, there are so many of us in this room right now that are in completely unmanageable situations. And some of you are thinking, wait, if that was Jesus who's inviting me into what I'm in right now, I don't wanna know him. I don't want anything to do with him if that was Jesus who's kind of orchestrating this thing. But please hear me when I say, have confidence in the captain of the storm. He wants your life to win in the end, not just right now. He has a bigger picture for your life and there are so many of us in this room that are feeling the weight of a storm, right? And Jesus is saying, come on. It's, it might get a lot harder before it even begins to get better, right? He invites Peter, just like us, to come. I want you to completely throw yourself into confidence in who I am and what I have for your life. And the only way for you to get there is if you step out of that boat, Peter. Peter steps out and what happens? I love this, what happens? He begins to look at the wind and the waves. He actually takes a few steps, which is awesome, but he doesn't make it. Peter doesn't make it to Jesus. He doesn't even get close, he begins to drown. And we have the most beautiful little picture of the gospel wrapped up right here. He cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. I, I believe you. You proved that I walked a few steps, but now I'm drowning. Save me, right? Not based on who I need you to be, but based on who you are. Save me. 
Jesus leans in and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But guess what? He saves him. He rescues him. He pulls him right out of the water, steps into the boat, and then calms the wind and the waves. And what happens next? What's the payoff? What's the final verse? Verse 33, all those who were in the boat worshiped, saying, certainly you are the son of God. The payoff was the identity of Jesus. It was him filling in the blank. It was him saying, you don't get to fill it in. You don't get to write in whatever you think you need me to be for you. And yes, this storm is rough. Yes, this is a hard situation. Jesus is not minimizing or making light, and neither am I, of what we are walking through in this room today, what's represented in these seats. But what he is saying is, I want to pull you out of this. I want to take you up to a 10,000-foot view, and I want you to trust me as the captain of this storm. I want you to believe me that I want your life to ultimately win in the end. There's a bigger picture here. There's an eternity in view that Jesus is saying, the only way you win in the end, even if you're going through pain now, is if you know who I am. If you know who I am. And sometimes the only way we actually come to know the Jesus as he is, not who we need him to be, is when he calls us into completely unmanageable situations. When he he takes us completely out of the comfort zone of even the areas of our strength, the areas that we think we can handle. And it's in those places as we're drowning and we cry out, Lord, save me, that it then produces such worship within us that not not the depths of hell could shake it in our lives. It produces such a depth of worship that is founded, that is based on the knowledge, the real knowledge of who Jesus is, that nothing can shake it. And then our life will win in the end, no matter what. It will win in the end. I'll end with this. A mentor of mine, um, he was born as a missionary. He's probably about 70 years old. Um, His parents were missionaries down in the Amazon jungle. And he was uh, born as a missionary kid in the jungles, literally in the jungles. And he was born with two club feet, so ankles that were turned inward. And I'll never forget, um, I was going through a really rough time, and I called him up, and I shared with him just the storm I was in. And he told me this story. He said, Jonathan, the earliest memories I have of my dad are the most painful memories ever. Because every night of my life, until I was about seven years old, he had to bend my ankles straight and put them into braces that would keep my legs straight. He said, I remember as a six, seven-year-old boy screaming at my father as he was bending my ankle back straight, I hate you, why are you doing this to me? Through tears in his eyes, like just screaming at his dad, this hurts, why, why? Why, Dad, why are you doing this to me? And his father, with tears in his eyes, looking back at his son, saying, just trust me, son. I want you to walk one day. This hurts. I know this hurts now, but there's a bigger picture at play. 
There's a bigger picture going on right now, and I have to do this right now. But I want your life to win in the end. Have confidence, have trust, have faith in me right now, son, because this hurts and there is no way around it. And I'm the one that has to put you through this to get you where I want you to be. I want you to walk, I want you to run, son. I want you to have a life filled with joy where if you wanna get out of your bed on your own two feet, you don't have to have crutches. And the only way to that is for me to do this every night for years on end. And I'll never forget, his name was Steve, he said, I just couldn't see the big picture as a six-year-old of what was going on. And now as a 70-year-old, I'm so grateful my dad did that. I'm so grateful I had to walk through that. And he said, and now that, that small little microcosm of a picture is multiplied on a 10,000 level scale throughout my life with everything I've been through. And not all of my issues and problems are resolved, he said. I'm still in the middle of storms and I will be until the very end. But I know where this whole thing is headed. I know where we're going. And this morning, this entire story, the point of the whole story is to take us from Jesus saying, it is I, to us saying, truly you are. The whole point of the story is Jesus discipling us saying, look, you're in storms. And if you're not in one, you just got out of one or you're heading into one. That is life on planet earth. But I am the captain of the storm and I want you to have confidence in me. And even if I have to, to pull your ankle straight for years on end, even if the storm you're in does not have an end in sight, please trust me because I want you to win in the end. Please trust me on who I am. I'm not just who you need me to be right now. I am the captain of this storm. I am the son of the living God. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and I will bring all of my people to me to full victory in the very end.